Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, Pakistan's climate crisis. Is the world doing enough to help the millions of people forced from their homes by devastating floods? Cataclysmic floods and heavy rains across Pakistan in recent weeks have left around a third of the country underwater. 33 million people have been affected and more than 1,500 people have already lost their lives. And with fears of waterborne diseases growing, those are unlikely to be the final figures. Much-needed aid for Pakistan, along with the issue of climate change more generally, is high on the agenda at the latest United Nations General Assembly in New York. And joining me now from there is Pakistan's Minister for Climate, Sherry Rahman. Hi. Officials are calling it a climate disaster of epic proportions. And the scale of the devastation in Pakistan is standing out even in a year of extreme weather events. Describe the situation in Pakistan right now. Yes, it's absolutely been a devastating time for uh, all those impacted, their families. And uh, it's been actually quite brutal time for everyone in Pakistan because it, it caused the kind of devastation we've never seen before, nor, nor were we expecting any level of it. It inundated one-third of the country underwater, much bigger than the super floods we saw in 2010. And it has started, obviously, raising questions on how countries like Pakistan on the front line of, climate, uh, of the climate uh, uh, disaster and change momentum are going to face down this level of uh, disruption, not just to our people, but to our homes, their shelters, their livelihoods, and our economy. It's going to be very difficult, even after the relief effort, which is extremely protracted, is over, to rehabilitate people and get their lives back in any shape to face a fragile future. Vulnerability to climate has not been a new thing for Pakistans. Neither have monsoons been a new thing. But uh, what we saw through July and August, and literally 11 weeks of uninterrupted uh, torrential downpours from the sky, it's like the sky opened up in a biblical flood. On, in the south of the country particularly, mm. has left everyone astounded and reeling in shock. So planners... Governments, uh, relief teams, everybody is, has been scrambling uh, for now two months to get people to dry land in Sindh and Balochistan particularly because you still have uninterrupted, uh, an uninterrupted horizon of water. You have a huge a new lake that's formed in the middle of, uh, of the southern province of Sindh, just inundating all crops, uh, hospitals, all brick and mortar, and it's become a, an unprecedented climate-induced challenge as well as climate-induced migration for us to deal with women and children, quite disproportionately impacted and uh, unable to even get to, to healthcare uh, facilities where uh, their maternal uh, and other needs are to be met, their, uh, their reproductive health needs are to be met. You mentioned Sindh province. Um, in the south, it's had 464% more rain over the past few weeks than the 30-year national average well, for the region. I mean, what is causing that kind of exceptional rise? 
Well, it's not actually just 400%. Now, if you count the, the 11, 12 weeks, the average goes down, but all of August saw 700%. Wow. That is, that is yes, absolutely cataclysmic. And the new, you know, the models, the, the, the climate scientific modeling that is coming in, and you may have heard of it a few days ago, attributes most of this uh, uh, weather, extreme weather, to climate-induced uh, patterns and uh, is not shy about saying this is climate-induced catastrophe. So naturally questions are being asked as to why this is happening to Pakistan, including the four heat waves that we saw before this. You know, where we crossed 53 degrees centigrade, we became the hottest country in the planet, or, or you know, areas in the planet, and that's become a very difficult um, temperature to live at, even for short while, because around it you have very high temperatures. You have our glaciers melting, and uh, I don't know if you know, we have the we have a very unique topography. The glaciers are the largest number outside the polar region, and quite magnificent. But when they start to melt, they create a glacial lake outburst floods, which impact vulnerable communities and livelihoods in the north and in the south you have first desertification brought about by the heat and then you have uh, this kind of epic uh, catastrophic flooding yeah. that leaves nothing uh, that leaves no no dry land for even people to pitch their tents on you talk about the flooding flood water now covers a hundred thousand square miles which is an area larger of great britain is there any chance that those flood levels are going to recede before that crucial planting season in October? That's a very, very good question. And that's the one thing that's been worrying not just our food security ministries, but uh, people everywhere because the Indus uh, is, is, has not, the waters have not receded at the pace and level we need them to for that sowing season. As you know, a lot of people in Pakistan rely on agriculture and we don't want to be importing expensive commodities at a difficult time like this. So it's been hard. The chief minister says that it most of it should be gone by December. But as you know, we will be probably missing that sowing season. They're going to try to make the best of uh, other areas that are dry. They're going to try to make the best of what soil they can use. But people are uprooted. The actual crop damages are still being estimated. They're going to run into billions. And uh, more important, they, they have removed from them a breadbasket for a householder as well as for the country. As you mentioned, it's not just rainfall, it's glaciers melting. I, I'm wondering, are there any early warning systems or protective infrastructure that, that could reduce this that maybe Pakistan could have been investing more heavily in since the last devastating floods? Well, I don't know where we would get the investments from. It's a vexed question at the UNGA and all other forums coming up, at, even at COP, and I'm late for a meeting right now on that, because climate financing and some level of compensations from countries that are actually adding to the greenhouse gas emissions that create this global warming is long overdue. I mean, we are less than a 1% emitter, and so... People are baffled as to why we have to create uh, the level of adaptation construction required, which, 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 which will go into billions of dollars. Yes, of course, we would love to do that. We have protective structures in the north because of the glaciers, you know, melting slowly and those are detectable. There we were able to save lives, but we were not able to uh, save infrastructure like, you know, small hydro plants as well as bridges. 
but in the north we were able to to uh, literally save a lot of lives most lives in fact through a tripling despite a tripling of our glacial lake outburst floods this season because we have community systems where we've trained people to understand when these uh, outburst floods could happen when the lakes would burst and bring the boulders down in in a very angry torrent with them so that's something that we have been able to manage but it's still ripping out uh, you know it, it still rips out when a glacier sends down a burst lake and ice uh, flash flood what it does is it just rips out bridges like twigs in front of it and and, and that's been happening so the the while we have built back better in some parts of the north like you know higher bridges from 2010 which were the area of traditional flooding in pakistan through the river and not the sky we have not been frankly i mean we've had over 12000 kilometers of just metal road ripped out of the country how please tell me would would uh, would pakistan with our supply chain disruptions with our import bills rising with our livelihoods gone our productive capacities impacted our railroads on half gone and our crop gone how are we going to pay for resilient uh, infrastructure yeah. that is badly needed and that's that's that should be coming through a process of what is known as adaptation in climate change there's no there's no real funding or appetite for adaptation and that's what we're fighting for over here So what immediate help do you need? You're at the United Nations General Assembly. You you've asked for some emergency aid along along with the, the United Nations. What what are you hoping to get out of it now? So you know, well, hope is not a plan. We we are looking for better planning and we are looking for some sense of prioritization for countries and we're not alone in this in facing what I call the rents the the cost paying the costs in terms of humanitarian payloads for other people's pollution so yes we will have to build and build and keep rebuilding our not just our country but our lives uh, and in doing so well uh, the the un has made a, a fantastic uh, humanitarian appeal the secretary general has been stellar and uh, clearly very driven by the by the moral core of his mission but you know the it should not be a disaster relief effort only that mobilizes all the, the G20 and others to understand that if if climate change is going to wreak ravages in the countries nearer the equator even though they they don't pollute as much this won't stop this is going to be an accelerated process and it's going to be a decisive decade for action on meeting uh, already pledged targets not just on financing but also on cutting down emissions so that slowly the warming comes down as yeah. you know greenhouse gases stay in the atmosphere years even after the the emissions have stopped well prime minister shri's government along with the united nations has asked for 160 million dollars in emergency funding so what immediate support do you still need Well, let me give you a figure here. The 160 million dollars are something that we've already repurposed for immediate humanitarian relief, and the 160 at the million at the UN will uh, be filling some kind of gaps in the huge need on the ground. I mean, 33 million people without food and shelter, and and scrambling for healthcare now as the waterborne diseases spread. is not easy to serve uh, service and initially our disaster relief efforts were also slow and sent uh, uh normally we use helicopters to search and rescue people 
um, maroon people, families, uh, and that's the that's the norm in all disaster relief operations. But this time, the the you know the cascade from the sky, the cloudburst, prohibitive. The helis couldn't take off. So you still see a ludicrous, but you know you know it's it's tragic to see the navy, Pakistan navy, operating constantly inside the country, rescuing people. It's a real. Uh, it's really anomalous, and it's big, it, it makes us say and feel that this catastrophe is like a message from nature. I quite agree with the Secretary General, who says we wage war against nature, and now I'm saying this is a message that nature has said, and it's been sent at our doorstep via Pakistan. Please read the signs and form strategies to, to uh, mitigate and uh, adapt against such a tragedy in the future. The countries that are in the front line, uh, many of them are part of the G77 plus China group, are already seeking loss and damage uh, as part of a, a financial uh, agenda item for COP27. It was not put in last time despite a lot of discussion. It just, it just went on as a discussion. But we would like it as a formal financial transfer agenda item because loss and damage is really the way forward. It's part of the Santiago uh, proposals. And we cannot keep on uh, uh, now saying that, oh, uh, countries have to do this on their own while others pollute. Countries uh, are, are at risk from all kinds of climate shocks. And uh, we should be only seeking humanitarian relief, the, the whole, even, even for humanitarian relief, because it's climate-induced. Yeah. There should be financial instruments outside even the UN system because why should this be a charity model of uh, resource transfer? These are rents we are paying for other people's carbon profligacy. So if this is a message from nature to the world, uh, well, what's your more general take on the international response to the, what, the catastrophe that's been happening in Pakistan? <laughs> National response generally is is uh, could have been uh, could have been more um, strong, but uh, there are distractions. Many countries, including China, United States, all have come in, and many countries have been actually deeply sympathetic. Have come in, have condoled, have uh, been shocked at the scale of what they see. No, they say that no video can bring up what they see on the ground. So, yes, uh, been bilateral, uh, excellent bilateral responses, but the heavy lift on resource sharing and transferring the relief needed has been slow. I mean, the, 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 uh, the conflict in the heart of Europe, Eurasia, takes up a lot of bandwidth, for instance. And uh, uh, as you know, the donor, donor fatigue for disaster management, for uh, uh, for even the Horn of Africa and other countries that are suffering the cataclysms of climate change, is quite high. But the, I don't think that the intent isn't there, or or the everybody's heart is in the right place. But as I said, hope is not a plan. We need to be timelining our efforts and and putting uh, formal mechanisms in place to both mitigate meet the pledges articulated and also prioritize adaptation for countries that are the ground zero of climate change. 
Following a meeting with China's President Xi Jinping in Uzbekistan for that SCO summit, your Prime Minister, um, Shabazz Sharif, said the two had discussed the climate crisis and the agenda and had agreed to cooperate closely to advance shared objectives. What do those shared objectives look like to you? Well, you know, I think China's been, of the People's Republic, has been a, a long-standing close friend of Pakistan in uh, many uh, eras and many ups and downs. I have no doubt that a close cooperation will entail a menu of uh, joint actions the countries can take. We have lots of uh, to learn from China's uh, capacity to create infrastructure in short intervals that we all know about. And we are open to all, not just technical capacity, which is very needed, but all infrastructure advice, we are open to human resource assistance and uh, obviously need it. And uh, obviously, um, the level of uh, grant-based transfers of resources that are needed, I hesitate to call it aid because I don't see it as aid. Something we've been talking about is, is donor fatigue. And a, a recent report um, in the UK noted that $880 million was raised in just a day and a half after the Notre Dame fire in Paris. Pakistan, meanwhile, meanwhile has to, to beg for, for international aid. Why do you think there's that disparity? Well, this is galling, and uh, these are political decisions, which is why we are insisting that uh, climate financing, and which is linked intrinsically to climate justice and the, the bargain between the global north and the south, that resources need to be transfers, transferred to countries that bear the brunt of climate stress but don't actually pollute, it needs to work. It, it should not be about aid. It should not be about having to run to seek aid. This is uh, actually, this should be built into the structural architecture of uh, climate negotiations and climate responses as the world moves forward. Otherwise, uh, no one will be able to do anything alone. And, uh, and, you know, to say to us that I understand governments are very cash-strapped everywhere. The pandemic has sobered many minds, but clearly not enough. It's been a difficult time for just the human race to come to terms with uh, the changes we see in our biosphere as well. Many countries have been impacted. And in all of this, I just have to say that money is very much in the system. The markets have it. And markets are ultimately, you know, big, big oil and gas has it. They're ultimately invested within national borders. And uh, they also are large uh, uh, conglomerates operating in the world. Just that if you see the latest Oxfam report, it tells you just 18 days of their profits, less than 18 days, will be able to cover the cost of the entire UN humanitarian appeal for 2022, which is almost $50 billion. Yeah, so the money is yeah. there. It's a question of how you resource it, how you, uh, what architecture is created. But it won't yeah. just happen on its own, and this aid model isn't working. Sherry Rechman, thank you very much. Thank you. Still to come here on the agenda, from floods to famine, is starvation the next threat for the people of Pakistan? Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.
Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. Welcome back to The Agenda. The floods in Pakistan have destroyed huge swathes of agricultural land and there's now real concern that the country's economy and food security is facing devastation too. Well, joining me now from Karachi is Chris Kay, Country Director for the United Nations World Food Programme. Thanks for, for coming on the show. Now, economic crisis, double-digit inflation, the price of basics soaring. Farmers were struggling to make ends meet already. These floods couldn't have come at a worse time for Pakistan, could they? It's a real, real concern. You will have seen from various estimations over the course of the past uh, 10 days or so that have been made on the overall costs for recovery, ranging from between 10 and 50 billion US dollars. The assistance community is led by the World Bank is currently undertaking a post-disaster needs assessment, which will go into some detail to estimate what needs to be done and at what cost. You know, what you're inferring, the situation is such that Pakistan really is struggling before the floods and, uh, and certainly with the economic and political instability, really don't have firm foundations for a clear-sighted and linear recovery such as that we might have in a, in a more stable situation. So what does that infer? It means that Pakistan needs the support of the international community, no question about that, to provide needed resources that will ensure it and the 230-odd million population doesn't slip further behind or even worse into, into chaos. Chris, there are fears that after the floods there could come famine, a real threat then to Pakistan's food security. I mean, how likely is that and how could it be avoided? Yeah, famine is, um, is a very frightening word, certainly for anybody who works for the World Food Programme and understands. You know, if we get to a point of famine, you know, we have failed. The World Food Programme exists in order to ensure that famine doesn't happen. And we have contributed, I think, to avoiding famine in, in a whole variety of, of, of different parts of the world over the course of the last several years, particularly. But, the, you know, the, there's no question, and uh, it's been well documented, increasingly understood, that there the, is a major global challenge in terms of food security whether it's caused by war, whether it's increasingly now caused uh, as a result of climate change uh, or the impacts of climate change. We think about the situation here in Pakistan. Pakistan is uh, a major food producer. It has been food secure in the past. It has struggled in recent years to maintain that level of food security, i.e. producing enough to feed its own population. It is now having to import food uh, to the tune of $8 billion on an annual basis, which is a huge drain for a country um, as cash-strapped as it is. But nevertheless, the amount of food that it does produce, and we've heard from the food ministry that it does have sufficient amount of food stocks in the country to provide for the numbers of people who are flood-affected. So famine, I like to believe, is unlikely, but you're right, it, it is a possibility. It's always a possibility. The fact there is hopefully enough food in the country to go around, the problem is much more associated in terms of whether people can actually afford to purchase the food or access it. And this is 
uh, in part where we come in as an organization, because with the right funding support through and from our donors, we can ensure that those who are most acutely vulnerable don't slip through the net or are completely left behind. And we can enable food to get to those parts uh, of the country which are either, you know, very uh, cut off or, or uh, inaccessible and where markets are maybe not working as well as they can. But it is a, a function often in a very, in, in, with very impoverished populations of ensuring that they have the finances, the, the funding that where they can actually purchase the food that is available. So yeah, it's a threat. Is it likely? No, uh, it can be avoided, uh, but it does require, again, a concerted effort by organisations like ours and many other international partners. Chris Kay, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Find out what the whole world is thinking in the agenda. Coming up on a future agenda, another climate crisis as Europe suffers its hottest summer on record. How can the continent cope with a continued water shortage? But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all of the agenda team here in London, goodbye.